Well, uh, good morning. I uh, appreciate that uh, preview of coming attractions as Jonathan was trying to rec recruit you for the choir uh, because uh, there's a different recruitment for the choir that's going to take place this morning and you want to tune your ear uh, to be ready for it. Now, scholars calculate that the Old Testament contains somewhere around 25,000 specific prophecies. Of those 25, pardon me, 2,500, approximately 2,000 have already been specifically fulfilled, leaving about 500 yet to be filled because of time. Now, we as a church believe that the Bible is the work of the inspiration of God. More specifically, we believe that the book that we're now studying, the book of the Revelation, was a revelation that God the Father gave to the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave to the Apostle John to tell us, the church, about what was coming and for our edification. Now, it's really, I think, interesting, in fact, logical, that if those thousands of prophecies of the Old Testament have already been fulfilled, that I assure you this morning that those that we are going to read today will also be fulfilled. Chapter 19 of the book of the Revelation contains every use in the New Testament of the word hallelujah. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament except in Revelation 19. So in some ways, chapter 19 could be called the original hallelujah chorus. And so that we might be blessed even as promised in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. Please stand for the hearing and the reading of the prophecy as we find it in Revelation 19. It's on page 3, continuing on page 6 in your worship guide, and you'll also find an outline on page 5. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged her blood on his, of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. 
for the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And they saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of the fire which burns with sulfur. And to the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Please be seated. Oh Lord our God, these are strong and powerful words. But they are words that we rejoice in hearing because they are filled with the notes of your victory, your triumph over sin. And we praise you that you have given them to us. And we ask this morning that in humility you would come to us and by your spirit you would seal not only these words but the truth of these words through our hearts. And you would further motivate us to that purpose for which you have made us to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. And we ask and we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. I can recall 
two times in my life where I experienced what I would call earthly hallelujah celebrations. The first one goes all the way back to 1972 on the 23rd of December of that month. Uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, who had long been the doormat of the NFL, were playing the uh, Oakland Raiders uh, for a playoff spot. And they were losing, and at the end of the game, old Snake Staber threw a pass, and it bounced off somebody, and it was snatched out of the air by the late Franco Harris, and he ran for a touchdown, and the entire stadium burst into spontaneous a celebration and rejoicing and hallelujahs. And we were sitting at that time right behind the Steelers' wives. They were all going crazy and rejoicing. And that happened 37 years ago. In fact, it ushered in an era that you can't even speak about in Dallas, the, uh, the era of the Steeler Nation for the next 37 years. They won six Super Bowls. But believe me, I will never forget that moment. So in light of that kind of a celebration, has anybody ever asked you or have you ever considered the question, what is the first thing that you are going to do when you arrive in heaven? What is the first thing that you are going to do when you arrive in heaven? Well, I believe Revelation chapter 19 has that answer for us. And we're going to search for it this morning, and hopefully the Lord is going to let you see it with a kind of clarity and brilliance that you have never seen before. Last week, David made it very clear for us that the context for everything that follows chapter 18 in Revelation is the destruction of Babylon. It was clear beyond a doubt the fall of Babylon was taking place, and it would take place, the fall of the kingdom of the world, the flesh and the devil that has been set up in human civilization on this earth with all of its pride, with all of its pomp, and with all of its opposition to God. The destruction of Babylon is the keynote for 18 and all that follows. The commentator Ladd says this about Babylon. He says, Babylon literally pictures the prostitution of humanity for everything that they have and have been given for the sake of money and financial gain. That's what Babylon is. You want to know where the problem is? Follow the money. God said it clearly in the Gospels. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money. Then the Apostle Paul says it again even more clearly. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so, with the destruction of Babylon, what is the response in heaven? The response in heaven is, hallelujah, Babylon is gone. Look at verses 1 through 3. Babylon is judged. It is avenged. It is destroyed. The danger to this world, if you would, is not climate change. It is not our carbon emissions. It is our unrepented sin, our sins of commission and our sins of omission. And because of that lack of repentance, 
all of which is signaled in the book of the Revelation, and we are called to it, is kindling for us the danger of the wrath of God, which is, which is highlighted in the last part of this chapter. Now, the destruction of Babylon was absolutely necessary. It, it literally had to go, because as long as Babylon stands, the kingdom of God will not be established fully in your heart or in this world. As long as your allegiance to Babylon in your heart is there, as long as the world's allegiance is there, the kingdom of God will not be fully established. And so Babylon had to go. Dallas, modern-day Dallas, particularly the suburbs, sort of reminds me as a, a building demolition derby. Uh, some of you have probably noticed uh, buildings that you were acquainted with for many years. All of a sudden, there's a trailer parked beside it, and it says, so-and-so's demolition. And then the demolition begins, and that building is reduced to rubble. It is loaded in dump trucks. It is taken to landfills, and it's disposed of. And then the, blind, the land is scraped bare, and what happens? A new building arises. Again, all in the pursuit of money, all in the pursuit of development, all in the pursuit of growth, but it's bare and it's gone. And that's what's being pictured here. And what it is telling us by way of application is this world, no matter how well off we are in some things or all things or anything, this world does not hold the key to our happiness, and it does not have the secret for our eternal welfare and well-being. It is absolutely true that here we have no lasting city, that we are looking forward to a city whose builder and maker is God. And Babylon had to go before that city would be ready to come. And so the hallelujah came from heaven as the, as the destruction of Babylon is celebrated. Now that was only the first one. After the destruction of Babylon, we see the second hallelujah, which says, hallelujah, the Lord our God will reign. He'll reign in salvation, in power, and with justice. The corruption of fallen man and his government will be over forever and the perfect rule of God will come. Can you imagine perfect government forever and ever? No mistakes, no injustice, no crime waves, nothing that is out of order. When Babylon is gone and the city of God has come, that will be reality. Think about it. Isn't that what happens in our lives? When the Holy Spirit begins to work in our lives, something's got to go before the kingdom of God comes. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says it this way. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has gone and the new has come. You're under construction. You're under construction being prepared for a greater glory. 
And when we think about that, we as individuals, in fact, embody the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is within us. We as the church picture the kingdom of God and it's simply by way of application. If that is really true, shouldn't we really live like Christ's rule is effective in our lives, in our lives as individuals, in our lives as a church? How we treat people, how we interact with one another, how we worship God. Is the king reigning and the kingdom come in us? If so, there should be a difference. A difference that is notable. Not too long ago, uh, maybe Allison Crow remembers as somebody came looking for my phone number through the uh, church office and they finally got it. And what it was, it was a phone call uh, for somebody. Uh, I had worked with 40 years ago, and uh, they had recently become a Christian. He said, I wanted to call you and tell you something. I said, what? <laughs> Who knows what I did 40 years? I mean, I did a lot of things I was ashamed of. <laughs> but he said, well, you were different. Okay, why was I different? I'm different on the wrong side, but, you know, there was a time when the Lord, uh, with his heavenly lightning, struck me, and uh, things changed. But he remembered that for 40 years. And it was part of why he pursued Christ 40 years later. And you have no idea with those people that are watching you what they might see and what they might, might remember 10, 20, 30, or 40 years from now that God might use as part of bringing them to Christ. So, as we just think about ourselves, we might think it's little Christianity, but we don't have to settle for small Christianity because again, the hallelujah rings from heaven. Hallelujah, for the wedding is coming. The wedding of the lamb is coming, it's in verses seven through nine. The bride is coming with readiness and coming for celebration. That's big scale. That's gonna be on a cosmic global scale, not small Christianity. There will be a time when all of those who are in Christ will be raised and those who have gone to be with him will be joined together with them in the clouds to meet him there in the air. Think about something just for a minute. Think about the wedding that Jesus attended in Cana and Galilee. That's where he did his first miracle. And the first miracle he did at that wedding was to make some wine. Can you believe that? He made 120 gallons of it, if I read the scriptures right. And it wasn't just some wine. It was the best wine. And it was saved for last. And what we do with these earthly elements before us this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper is a picture of what is being saved for us, that the best will be saved for last. The great wedding supper of the Lamb. The wedding is coming. And not only is the wedding coming, again, the text celebrates with hallelujah. Hallelujah, our Christ is coming in power and in glory. You cannot help but read verses 11 through 16, and if you have any imagination at all, 
you're going to say, this is awesome. And it will be, you know, we overuse this word, oh, that was awesome. You ain't seen awesome yet. But when awesome comes, it will be unmistakable. Personally, in my own life, I've uh, witnessed a lot of awesome displays of man-made power and man-made glory. A lot of flame, a lot of fire, a lot of power. But when I let my imagination go on what is pictured in verses 11 through 16, it is beyond literally comprehension. And as we have read the book of Revelation, and some have found trouble in persecution or what happens to the saints, the comfort is all here. It's the same comfort we talked about from the beginning, is that our God wins. Our God has victory. The last hallelujah says, hallelujah, our Lord will have total victory. Complete victory. The description in those verses is so complete, it's really sort of mentally devastating. I noticed something in preparation for this sermon that I really hadn't noticed before. There are two meals in this passage. There's the wedding supper of the Lamb, where believers are fed with the best of heaven from the hand of the Lord. And then the second meal is the great supper of God, where those who have not repented, where those who don't believe are the meal, where they are devoured ignominiously by the birds of the air. That is a powerful thought. It's something when you begin to think about it, the invitation has been given. Blessed are those, it says, who are invited to the wedding supper of Lamb. The invitation is out there. You're going to hear it again this morning around the Lord's table. If you haven't come to the Lord, it will be time to come. It's an invitation that is blessed. And it's issued over and over again in the book of the Revelation. But then that second meal, there is nothing blessed about it. It is the full wrath of the of, the, of, of God as, as the Lord treads the winepress of the fury of his wrath. And how could you logically justify turning down that first invitation in favor of the latter? Being fed by the Lord and being devoured by birds. There's no choice there. That is the simplest binary proposition that I have ever heard. And so the last hallelujah that I would call to your attention is literally a hallelujah that says we're invited to join the chorus. That's what verse 4 says. Praise God, all of you people, it comes from the throne. The call is to join the chorus in heaven. Now, that call comes to you and to me, comes to all of us. Now, maybe you're wondering about the second spontaneous hallelujah that I've observed in my life. And uh, it happened uh, in an airplane. It was called uh, the, the Freedom Bird, and it was a big green Braniff 707. You remember those days, any of you? 
when Braniff painted their planes all kinds of outrageous colors. And it was sitting on the uh, runway of Tonsonute Air Base. And at that time, a 707 back in uh, 69 held about 200 people. And uh, on that airplane, which was filled every seat, were guys that were going home. Almost every one of them were line soldiers in Vietnam. And uh, I can speak for them, and I can speak my, very well for myself. Everybody on that plane wondered at one time or another, would they go home alive or would they go home in an aluminum box? And so on that sweltering runway in that airplane, as it began to warm up and it taxied down the runway, as it began to pick up speed, as it began to go faster and faster and then began to rotate and lift the nose and break ground and get into air, at that moment, that plane to a person erupted in a spontaneous celebration. I don't know if the words were hallelujah that many times, but there wasn't a mouth that was shut. Every one of them was open, for they were going home. And that's what the victory of the Lord will mean to you and to me on the day of his return, when all of his enemies are destroyed and all those that he died for are his. Now, I don't know about you, but I know about me. The first thing that I'm going to do when I get to heaven is I'm going to join the chorus. You ought to think about that because you're going to have a chance to join the chorus every day we worship, every time we gather. You join your voice with those voices on high, worshiping our God and our King. May the Lord, by his grace, make us fit to join that eternal chorus. Amen.